From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour is made with a contest. As reported by the Washington Post, the island of Gotland in Sweden organized that contest, one that rewards the world's ugliest yards. This year, the winner was a yard in Tasmania that hadn't been watered in 10 years and had the noteworthy feature of a dead bushtail possum. Now, reactions aside, the contest is not some clickbait social media effort. It is one with an actual environmental focus. The idea is to reward people who turn their yards over to nature and again, according to the Washington Post, save water and change the world's perception of what an ideal lawn is. What is your vision of an ideal lawn? For some, it is just perfect grass, monoculture, manicured, so to speak. But environmental activists and, and some experts in the field would like you to consider something that could be described as, well, some might think it's a little messy. Maybe you'll get over the idea that it's messy. And maybe not dead possum messy, but a gardening space, be it a yard or a window box for starters that could prioritize native plants. Author and University of Delaware entomologist Doug Tallamy told The Post, quote, if we're saying we're all going to have the ugliest landscape in the world, that's not going to catch on. I'm trying to reduce the area of lawn and do it in an attractive way so you're not thrown out of your neighborhood, end quote. And we know it's mid-February, but experts like Tallamy and our guest today say it is never too early to start thinking about spring planting, what's to come, how to be prepared, how to have a vision for that. And Tallamy in particular wants us to consider taking whatever size space we have for gardening and creating what he calls homegrown national parks. Our guest this hour will help us understand how to do that, why it matters, and they're going to share some maybe opportunities for you to learn from the local experts if native gardens are something that you want to try to do with your space. It is so great to have Michael Warren Thomas back with us, founder of Naturally Green, Naturally Green FLX, an educator, a former radio host where if you're just hearing Michael, you're going to know it in five seconds. He's got the voice I wish I had. Welcome back to Connections, sir. Thank you, Evan. It's a pleasure. It's a great, it's, it's always great to talk to Michael. He's also, by the way, um, one of the absolute great advocates for Finger Lakes wine, um, local food, and really appreciating the entire scene. Uh, Marcy Muller is with us, horticulture team leader at Cornell Cooperative Extension of Monroe County. Marcy, welcome back. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for asking me. Uh, I, I was telling Michael uh, that I might have seen crocuses, although I didn't know what exactly it was peeking out of the lawn. How much awakening did you see when we had multiple 60-ish days of the last week? Michael. Oh, oh, I definitely oh, I'm sorry. Let, let me start with Marcy on, on that. That's a host operator. <laughs> Go ahead, Marcy. That's okay. I was just going to say some of the buds on the forsythia might have swelled up. Um, but I don't know. I, I really haven't seen the whole lot. I'm in West Bloomfield, so um, it's a little colder out here. I haven't seen a lot happening here yet. Okay. Michael, what about you? Lots lots in bloom. A yard in uh, Browncroft area is like snowdrops in full bloom and Dozens of them. Snowdrops are crocuses? Is that croci? No, no, snowdrops are even Different. earlier than crocuses, really. Um, snowdrops are just white, and they have little mm. little bells that dangle. And uh, uh, and my winter aconite, which is also usually March, but also very early, uh, was, in, was blooming. That's yellow. Um, I saw English daisy blooming and several dandelions blooming in Genesee Valley Park. So Did you say dandelions? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're blooming. Wow. Um, and, you know, Michael, you and I have talked uh, about a number of issues related to the Finger Lakes wine industry. If you're in a vineyard and you're seeing bud break, which they wouldn't, I mean, we haven't had nearly enough. That, that wouldn't happen now. But certainly there are some plants that the earlier things really get moving, the longer you got to deal with the risk of freeze. And I don't think everything is in the equal category. Any concern about starting too early so far, Michael? I don't have any. The snowdrops could take snow and yeah, ten they, below zero. They and can handle that. The, yeah, the the daffodils that are starting to come up, they're fine. Uh, um, yeah, if we get if we get you know six seven days of sixty seventy degrees, like uh, two thousand twelve, we had a week of eighty degrees in March. That is that is really bad news. But a couple of warm days, no no problem. Well, I'm I'm sure with climate change that future years will be no problem, right? Yeah, 
exactly. <laughs> it's much easier there. No, I mean, not to be flippant about that. In fact, we're going to talk a lot this week on the program about climate change. But Marcy, what's, what are some of the bigger changes you've seen? Because I think sometimes people think in very linear ways about climate change. They just think a temperature goes up as opposed to more volatility, perhaps heavier precipitation, more unusual events and extremes in, in different directions. What have you noticed, Marcy? Yeah, so definitely the last two growing seasons, um, and particularly out our way, um, it's been very dry in the summer. And um, or when it does rain, it's a torrential downpour. It's you know we don't have that nice steady rain that can percolate into the soil and um, replenish uh, the soil moisture. So that's that's the big thing. And um, I know that Rochester says that they've had over 35 inches of snow so far this year. We haven't had hardly any out here. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we've had we've had a fair amount of rain. So it'll be interesting to see if we're kind of pulling out of this drought um, period. The other thing is um, the strong, strong winds. Um, we had a microburst go mm -hmm. over our house uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago. And um, I know that the wind is just always seems like it's blowing, blowing and um, really hard. And that has a drying effect as well um, on the soil and the plant leaves. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about just how many days we've even had snow on the ground. So 30 inches, mm -hmm. 30 in inches is a, is a strange number because it's very low for this time of the year in a place that averages 100. And yet for me, it feels like we've had maybe five. I mean, I, I don't right. remember hardly more than two or three days with snow on the ground that hadn't melted in a couple of days. So uh, just a remarkable winter that wasn't um, so far. And, you know, Michael, do you, you know, does that worry you? I mean, I know you talked about multiple 80 degree days in March is a problem, but overall, you know, do you view the, the shifts in these norms as a worrisome trend for those who love to grow. Sure. It's, and, and especially for people whose livelihoods depend on it, you know, if you own orchards or vineyards or grow corn or, you know, whatever you're, you're doing, um, it, it's, it's going to be an even bigger challenge, which is one reason sort of just like with yards, farmers need to diversify. You know, if you, if you're only growing apples and that's all you're growing, all your eggs are in one basket. Um, so maybe at least grow many different varieties of apples, grow apples for cider, grow apples for different uses. But um, yeah, facing the unknown of climate change, it seems that diversifying would be uh, a great idea and, and a way to hedge your bets. And yeah, I, and I don't, I'm surprised that California wineries aren't investing in the Finger Lakes because of you know the... Now, now it's atmospheric rivers if it's not drought or yeah. earthquakes or yeah. wildfires. So you can hedge your bets in a lot of ways, but different, different uh, crops you grow or different places you invest. Yeah, it's, that's another, that, that could be a, a whole other conversation that Michael brings up. But mm -hmm. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, and, and this is on memory only, and I deserve to be fact-checked on this, but an acre of potential vineyard land in, you know, in California's prime areas could could go for a quarter million dollars. An acre in in Washington and Oregon could go for forty to fifty thousand, and an acre in the Finger Lakes was still three to five to seven thousand. I don't know where it is now, and I'm way out of school. And you should not take those numbers as book anymore. That just illustrates just how that, different they are. Just how different they yeah. are. And and there's no question that that if my numbers aren't exactly on point, the the, mm -hmm. the difference was huge, and the difference is still probably huge today. I just think if I were in the wine industry on the West Coast, I'm I'm with Michael. I think I'd be looking at places like the Finger Lake saying that might be I mean, there's no place that's easy, no place that's not volatile, but that may be one place to look, perhaps. Yeah. Right? Come 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 east. Yeah, come come east. And east. <laughs> uh, listeners, if you've got questions, comments on growing and things that are on your mind, whether it's what you've seen in the last week, but really as we look ahead to uh, the next few weeks and months, that's a great time to start thinking about that. You can call the program. It's toll-free, 844-295-TALK. It's 844-295-8255, 263-WXXI if you're in Rochester, 263-9994. You can email the program, connections at wxxi.org. And I want to ask Michael and Marcy about this. Michael, write in your, your email handle right there, Michael Warren Thomas, less lawn, more nature. 
So, mm-hmm. um, so Michael, I, I grew up in a house where my mother wanted that monoculture lawn and she wanted us playing out on the lawn all the time. And we always had fertilizer under our feet. And, you know, that was just part of life in the eighties and nineties for me. Um, and that still exists, of course, but I wonder what, what you would start by telling people who really do idealize that monoculture, perfect grass lawn. Uh, keep some of it, but get rid of half of it and cut down your time on mowing. I ran into a woman who spends six hours mowing her lawn. She lives out in the country. Six hours, you know, once a week mowing your lawn. It, it, that seems like an incredible waste of time. And lawns are expensive. Once you And fertilizers have become more expensive. Pesticides, uh, watering your lawn, uh, mowing it, or hiring someone to mow it, raking the leaves off, you know. If you don't have a lawn, you don't need to rake the leaves. And there's so much money that goes into maintaining these lawns. And you know, a lot of it's areas that your kids or your grandkids don't use. I mean, the side yards, the, the backyard, the part of the front yard. You can expand borders. You can do a lot of things. And just so you have less lawn. And I think Doug Tallamy's homegrown national parks idea is if people just got rid of half their lawns. You know, keep half. Enjoy mowing it. Fertilize it. You know, the more you fertilize it, the faster it grows, the more you have to mow it. So enjoy that smaller lawn and do something else to bring more nature. Now, I want to defend Michael. <laughs> what I say? No. <laughs> no, it's just that the people who spend six hours mowing, that's a lot of time mowing. But they might say, I, I listen to great radio podcasts when I mow. You know, so. Yeah. Um, and you're not denying them that pleasure. You're just saying, cut down the space there. Um, and. Another point that Michael raises, too, is that when we see these beautiful monoculture lawns, I can remember where I grew up. My mother was at least like, go play, go play on the grass. But we had neighbors who was like, they had beautiful lawns. But if you set one foot on it, they'd say, well, get off the lawn. It's beautiful. And I would say, well, it's like having a museum for a house. We can't sit on anything. What, what are we doing here? So I, I, don't want to, I don't want to malign anybody's choices or their desire for how they want to do their yards, I probably sound really annoying, um, but I guess I didn't understand that because when you do have something beautiful, I didn't understand why you don't want to use it. And I, I don't know. I, you want to bail me out here, Michael? Because I'm probably getting myself in trouble with some listeners. Yeah, no doubt. Um, <laughs> so keep keep some of that lawn. Uh, I love the smell of cut grass. I don't love the sound of the mowers, the leaf blowers, yeah. the weed eaters. Yeah. That in the suburbs is, uh, we don't use as many of them in the city because lawns are smaller. I don't have a lawn, but uh, the noise is, 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 is toxic. But I see those lawns as lost opportunities, just like the non-native tree species that I happen to have a Norway maple as my tree in my, along the street. They're lost opportunities. You know, mm. There are only maybe two or three moths that uh, that live in the grass. We don't really want them there, but they there are only a few that really like the grass. Grass doesn't feed nature. Uh, right. We need trees and shrubs and perennials and all kinds of things. Uh, Doug Tallamy talks about caterpillars, how many we need. It takes six to 9,000 caterpillars for just a pair of chickadees to raise one nest old enough that they can fly out of the nest, which is the point at which they can no longer measure how many caterpillars because you can't go follow the chickadee, no GoPro on the chickadee. But uh, it's six to 9,000 for the, the period when they're raising their nestlings, one, one nest. Amazing. They're not getting those caterpillars off that lawn. Yeah. There's, there's like nothing for them. Amazing. Go ahead, Marcy. I have another uh, another thought and or another approach if you if you want to have lawn. Years ago, I read a book and I cannot remember the name of it, but it was about lawns, and what they they referred to two kinds of lawns. One is what they called the industrial lawn, which is the one that is you know has four or five treatments a year, heavy fertilization, all of the pesticides because when you push the grass, it becomes stressed. And so you have, it's going to be more susceptible to diseases and insects and such. So all of that treatment, and, and, and I, I don't mean to offend the lung companies either, but, um, but that, that made what it, they called an industrial lawn. Then you have what I have at my house, which we call the freedom lawn, which is whatever's out there, as long as it looks green from a distance 
and my kids had a place to play, I was perfectly happy. So we have dandelions and we have clover and we have, and when everything goes dormant in July, the clover is still green. And, um, you know, there's, there's flowers there for the pollinators and there's habitat and, and all that sort of stuff. And you're not putting all the chemicals out. Um, do you also, Marcy, find yourself looking at lawns as, I think you use missed opportunity, maybe Michael, was that the term, Michael? Fair? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I'm all for planting uh, other plants than grass, but, um, you know, people, it's funny because grass is not native to this area. Woods are native to this area. And so, um, but people love their lawns and, and, and I kind of, you know, I, I guess I get it. Um, so, you know, if they want to have it, okay, but maybe just with everything, um, with your trees and your shrubs and your perennials and everything, um, when we talk about integrated pest management, we have to be willing to accept a certain amount of imperfection. And so if you just kind of relax a little and don't worry about everything being absolutely perfect, that makes a big difference too. We're talking to Marcy Muller from uh, the horticulture team leader from Cornell Cooperative Extension of Monroe County, Michael Warren Thomas, founder of Naturally Green FLX, uh, among other titles. What is Naturally Green, by the way? Uh, I do design uh, and consultations, trying to help people find a way to reduce the lawn and, and bring in more nature in their yards. I do some teaching, Brighton community education. Uh, so Michael didn't ask me to bring this up, but are, are you you got some hours for hire this spring for people who need help? Yeah, I'm <laughs> love to love to take a look at people's yards uh, and there's details on the website, but they also come to a class and you know the more invested they are in learning about nature, the more fun they're going to have transitioning rather than just having come some in and come in and just sort of fix it for them. It's you sort of learn that nature is a process that um, you, you need to embrace the changes, the, the seasons, the, the, you know, what happens, the things that are out of your control, um, like the weather and, and, you know, sort of roll with it. And people have the sense that when they create a landscape, they want it to stay the same, like, you know, prune the shrubs so they're the same size, lots of mulch, instead of embracing the change. And, and my, my parents had a, a landscape designer, Parker Scripture, who's uh, long since passed away, but was way ahead of his time planting only native, almost only native plants in my parents' yard in the 70s. And he, he planned for some things to be taken out because other things were going to grow slowly and fill that space, and we'd be the eventual owners of that space, I guess. Uh, so he, he planned for that change rather than we tend to prune things and try and keep them as they were when they went in. And you know, it's, it's a, a way of looking at nature as a growing thing, I guess, that uh, is helpful to embrace. And the more you do that, the less stress, as Marcy pointed out, you know, the less stress you have. You, it doesn't need to be perfect. Uh, where, do people, where do people find you online? Uh, NaturallyGreenFLX.com. I can email me, Michael, at NaturallyGreenFLX.com. And uh, uh, Brighton Community Education does not have those classes up on their website yet, but they will in the near future, and they start uh, early April. All right, let me get a couple listener comments. Jill in Rochester called in to say that the lawn care industry is a $170 billion industry. And I think our quick fact check says that's roughly correct. She says they're doing just fine. I'm glad you're talking about this subject. Um, so that it's a big money industry. That's one reason uh, that there's a lot of uh, propaganda is the wrong word, but there's a lot of advertising about spin. Yeah, beautiful lawns. You know, what a beautiful lawn looks like. And keep some, you know. Keep some lawn. It, it makes a nice uh, offset to gardens uh, to show them off. Uh, but but think about doing less less lawn and and uh, inviting more nature, which is really we don't we've lost so many birds, we've lost so many insects. We need more homes for them, and your lawn is not a home for them. Trees, shrubs, perennials, uh, all of those things create homes. Um, I uh, I have had such little success. Uh, compared to the effort and time and probably some money that I've put in to grass growing in my years uh, when I've been fortunate enough to be a homeowner, I go back to my 20s, my mid-20s, my first house in the Rochester area had a lot of moss in the yard. 
And I w- read that I think lime did something. I, I don't remember what it was. It was a bagged product. It might have been lime that does some damage to moss. Get the moss out and get grass going. And um, I didn't have a spreader, so I just walked in a zigzag pattern through the yard, just spreading it by hand. And the next day, I came home and I thought that someone had basically graffitied my yard black in lightning patterns. It was absurd. And it was to- it had nothing, nothing good came of it. Um, I spent a lot of time agonizing over how to fix that. And um, it looked bad and it was kind of silly. And I'd spent years then trying to do it better and how do I spread this more evenly and what do I do? And um, I just, I'm feeling a little bit more at peace with what Marcy and Michael are telling us. Now, having said that, Alan writes, and this is probably common for a lot of people. Alan says, Evan, I spent the last week raking. Usually I've got snow on the ground and I had a chance to get out and do some raking, particularly on my side yard. And I felt like I'm ahead of things, but your guests are telling me that I shouldn't have to rake the leaves. Can your guests explain? That is from Alan. I'll start with Marcy on this. You both want to talk about what our guests should think about when it comes to leaves and what to leave and what to rake. Alan says he spent much of the last week raking. And I might have too if I were home more often. I'm with you there, Alan. What do you think, Marcy? That's one thing. Um, although it depends on how thick the leaves are. You know, if they're just kind of scattered around, run over them with the lawnmower and break them into smaller pieces and let that organic matter go into the grass and into the soil. Um, if the leaves are thick on the lawn, then you are going to wind up with uh, not getting any sunlight to the grass blades and they're going to um, start to go off color and, and maybe go dormant. Um, if you're talking about raking leaves out of your um, garden beds, what the um, the uh, suggestion is now is to leave those because many of the beneficial insects um, overwinter in that leaf litter. And um, so if you take it out, it's going to expose them to, you know, because we know it's going to get cold again. Um, and so it's better just to leave them all in your beds and wait and do a big spring cleanup if you have to. Okay, Michael? Yeah, it, again, save a little bit of effort. Uh, leave the leaves in your landscape beds and just sprinkle some mulch on top of them in the spring and don't even rake them out in the spring because those are compost. Those are great nutrients for your for your, your plants. Uh, and they are homes for things, uh, many caterpillars, some like the woolly bears overwinter as a caterpillar and they just freeze. And then you know, on a warm, you might have seen one a couple of days ago crawling around because gets warm, they, they start crawling around again. Or the morning cloak butterfly that overwinters as an adult. So in, in March last year, I saw a morning cloak in the witch hazel in Highland Park, a butterfly in March flying around. So we have so many of these different insects that inhabit our, our landscapes. Again, not so many in the grass, but in other parts of our landscape that are beneficial in ways that we don't know about or we don't think about. But they're feeding our ecosystem. And so the less you can do with it, the better. And as Marcy said, you do have to rake the leaves off the grass if you have lots of leaves on the grass because it will smother the grass. Uh, that's a way to kill a bunch of your grass too. And you know, rake all the leaves into one section and kill that section of grass, put some, uh, some new things in. Uh, plant native plants if you can because uh, so much of what we already have is not native. I'm glad you bring this up, Michael. And um, let me just say to Steve and Menden, writing to us from Odonata Sanctuary, I'll get to your question coming up, but I, I want to take this opportunity to address what a couple of listeners have asked about when it comes to how to recognize what's native and not native. So, Michael, you've brought this up a few times. Uh, I'll start with you here. Understanding what is native. You've talked about trees on your street. You've talked about plants. How do you know what's native and not native, and, and what's a good process as, uh, as someone who wants to be a, a smart person? planter, gardener, et cetera. Can you clear the afternoon? This is going to take three or four hours. <laughs> You're going to have to condense. <laughs> uh, so it's a great time of the year to do research and look up and uh, look up native plants online. Uh, Doug Tallamy with the, I think it's America Wildlife Federation, uh, I'm actually not certain of that. With You'll find it online, look up Doug Tallamy. He's got lists of, of native plants and even it says how many uh, uh, caterpillars they host. So you can you can see trees and shrubs and things and see how important they are. Uh, 
and and then look up some of the non-native things. It gets you get into the weeds a little bit, which is kind of fun to do during the winter when you're not out working in the garden, maybe uh, because there are hybrids, there are. Um, so you have sort of natives that will propagate themselves by seed, but then growers create hybrids that are native varieties, but they can't propagate by seed because they've been hybridized. So they're maybe not as beneficial as as a, a call it a true native, but it it gets a little complicated and and interesting. So people should look into it and do a little research, reading, watch some of the. Doug Talmies, there's a lot of uh, videos on YouTube of, of him speaking. Uh, and hopefully you'll find it fascinating, not frustrating. So by buying native plants, many of the local nurseries, some like Bricolo Nursery, really focus on native plants, and they have a lot of them. Uh, we have lots of great nurseries in our area, and, and many of them like Bristol's, Sarah's, Palmeter's, Wayside, uh, Grandpa's nursery. Uh, many of them will have native plants in a section, so you you sort of know what's native because it's labeled that way, or the the actual plant labels will say native on it. But again, that that may say native. It may be a hybrid, which doesn't provide as much pollen or nectar for the pollinators. So is that that's not ideal, maybe, but it's better than a non-native. Uh, so the the point is to. Do a little research. There's a lot available online, and um, we have a couple nurseries like uh, Amanda's Garden and White Oak Nursery that really specialize only in those really true natives. Uh, smaller nurseries, Amanda's comes up and does the native plant sale for the Genesee Land Trust and and White Oak too, uh, usually in in May at the Brighton Town Hall. Uh, that sells out within like 30 minutes, so very quickly last spring, because native plants are hot these days. So you should maybe, you can order things online from her and and uh, bring them on as she comes up from Dansville, uh, Dansville area. So we have some great sources of plants in this area, and uh, it doesn't need to look messy. You started off the show talking about, you know, ugly, ugly yard contest and, um, you know, there's something happening in my yard. I'm sure some people think my yard is ugly in the city of Rochester. No one's asked me to mow it yet. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there's goldenrod, there's asters, there's there's some non-natives, too, that I, I now regret putting in. But uh, have some fun exploring what these plants are. What's an example of a non-native that you wish you hadn't put in? Oh, vinca. Vinca. Periwinkle. It's a evergreen. Uh, I've got three different varieties of it because one has a white flower, one has a purple, and one has the old traditional blue. And I was, it took a few years for them to really fill an area. So it looked really nice. And now, now it's going to be much harder to get rid of because I have so much of it and it's not native. It's, it's pretty aggressive. Uh, it's not as bad as English ivy, but I, I wish I hadn't planted it. <laughs> Nobody's looks perfect. nice now. Looks nice. <laughs> uh, Marcy on the subject of, of recognizing native versus non-native. So it's kind of a tricky conversation because truly uh, we don't know what the original native plants were to this area. You know, the, the minute man stepped foot on the soil here, started cutting down trees, they changed the whole plant ecosystem um, from then. But um, there are plants that are um, you know, are, that you see growing in wild areas around here that um, like the shrub dogwoods and, um, uh, the, you know, all the wildflowers, the asters, the, the goldenrod, the, the um, they're not Shasta daisies, but they're, they're a kind of daisy that you just don't want to smell them because they smell horrible. Um, but so people can you can get really hung up on is it is it a true native or is it not so we want to we want to try and find plants that are that grow in a similar um environment across you know it's nice if you focus on the northeast but there are plants that come from a little bit from the the midwest or a little bit further south that will do well here and um that means that there are native um insects and animals that um, need them. So that would be helpful. Um, what Michael was uh, referring to is that some of the native plants, they they make cultivars out of them. They call it a nativar. Um, and, 
yeah, they're, they're, they're better than, um, you know, something that would be invasive or something, you know, that doesn't provide anything to the ecosystem, but um, they're not going to really provide a food source for our insects and so on. And Marcy, people can apply now to become a master gardener volunteer with Cornell Cooperative Extension. Oh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, we are. We are uh, recruiting, well, getting ready to. We already have a bunch of people who have um, expressed interest. There's going to be four meetings um, to explain the Master Gardener program. Um, if you go to our website, which is monroe.cornell.edu, um, you can find where and when those um, informational meetings are going to be. Also on our website, um, uh, germane to this conversation, uh, we have our pollinator friendly garden group. Um, these people have, they're all master gardeners. They have spent an extremely uh, large amount of time um, in uh, researching and putting together plant lists. They have a recommended plant lists. They have a program where if you'd like, they can come out and review your garden or a part, a part of your garden, or, you know, it doesn't have to be your whole yard. Um, and it, they can give you recommendations for how to make it more pollinator friendly. Um, and if it if it meets all of the criteria, you can get a sign that says, you know, this is a Cornell Cooperative Extension pollinator friendly garden. Um, so there's lots of um, resources right there just on our website. Um, after we take this only break. Lisa, Wendy, on the phone. We'll get your calls right away. I've got a pile of your emails we'll get to. We'll get to as much as we can in the next 20, or min 20 minutes or so with our guests talking about um, maybe the way that this last week has us really thinking about planting and how we use our space and, and what we want to grow and what we're trying to accomplish. Michael Warren Thomas and Marcy Muller are with us, and we're having a great conversation about that. Your questions answered after this only break. I'm Evan Dawson. Tuesday on The Next Connections, Tucker Carlson recently sat down with Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin spent half an hour talking about his view of history, Russia, Ukraine, and who should control what. We're talking to a guest from the Democratization Policy Council about the implications of his views. In our second hour, a new book argues climate change is a huge problem, but we should go about it differently. Talk with you Tuesday. This is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. By the way, as Michael Warren Thomas reminds me, the Master Gardener training, if you miss it um, and you want to do it, you may regret it because well, it's only every two to three years, Michael. Uh, something every two you. years. Every two every years. Every two years. So it's uh, don't wait. This is a don't wait one. And you don't need to, I mean, Mercy, please correct me, but you don't need to be a gardening expert. The, it's an incredible training program that the gardeners go through, right? Right. Yes. They, yeah. All you have to really bring with you is an enthusiasm for gardening. Um, but they, yes, their training is is very detailed. All right, to the phones we go. Lisa in Rochester. Hi, Lisa. Go ahead. Hi. Um, okay, last summer I had a veg garden, and my peppers and my tomatoes looked really weird. They got stunted and misshapen, and I did bring a brandywine tomato with the roots and some soil, Cornell Cooperative. Well, it came back that I've got all these viruses. I've got, I don't know, tobacco virus, mosaic, all kinds of stuff. And I don't really know what to do about it. Do I need to get rid of the soil I have and totally amend it? Or, um, and secondly, I have, I grow heirloom vegetables. So the seeds that I generally save, does that mean that they've got the virus too? Hmm. Okay. Uh... Say, I, I would tell you that, first of all, um, do you rotate your plants? Because um, even in a small garden, um, you know, my garden is, is 30 by 30 and I move my tomato plants every year um, to a different spot. Uh, that's always been recommended for um, soil-borne diseases. Uh, as far as if the seed would have it, I don't know, but it, that's a good possibility. Um, but don't quote me on that one. Okay. So rotate the plants, and someone said that all the, like I use a, a tomato cage, that they should all be sterilized with bleach. Is that true, too? Uh, that, might, that might be a little 
beyond what you need to do. It's really, it's the soil that where the, where the uh, virus is. And what so should you I just do have it? to, well, so are you growing, is this just like a plot in your yard? You're growing yeah. right directly in the ground. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, really ideally if it's at all possible, it may, may not be possible would be to move to a different area for a little while. Um, and let those viruses just sort of dissipate. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, you know, making sure that they're not planted in the same place every year, at least. Okay. All right. Good Thank luck. you. Good luck, Lisa. Yeah. Thank you very much. Wendy, anything you want to add there, Michael, by the way? You know, you look for resistant varieties of vegetable plants and, and I would, Ask the farmers when you're buying them, uh, you know, and, and there's lots of great sources around our region uh, for things like tomato plants. Uh, ask them for resistant varieties. Uh, Todd Lighthouse, Lighthouse Gardens, he's at the Brighton Farmer's Market uh, and, and has his greenhouse out uh, towards Lima. And, uh, you know, most growers have some resistant varieties. They may not be names you recognize, varieties you recognize, but they're they're more resistant to some of these diseases, maybe, and viruses. Not to all of them, but to some of them. All right, Wendy in Rochester, next on the phone. Hi, Wendy, go ahead. Hi. So, um, our garden um, is underneath a black walnut tree, and so one of my questions is: Is it with the black walnut leaves? Um, we tend to take them up because um, it took my father-in-law who who owned the house before us, years and years to develop the soil to the point where uh, the black walnut wasn't killing the plants. And now we have a wonderful garden. And I don't know if the leaves are bad for the, for the plants yep. and whether we need to take them up. And it's the in all parts is, of the plant. Okay, so we should always take them up. Okay. Mm -hmm. and then And then the other question is, um, I wanted to have a rain barrel and my my husband said, oh, they get they, they get to the point where they smell and people don't, you know, she'd heard a lot of complaints from people. And I'm just wondering what you think of rain barrels and how you keep them in good shape. Marcy, you want to hit you that, Michael? You, Michael, you want to hit this one here? Uh, well, for one thing, just a note on black walnuts, the, the roots uh, have that toxin in them also. And so usually it's Usually it's the roots that are killing tomato plants in the middle of summer when the mm -hmm. tree, the, the roots are coming from a tree that's 100 feet away because the roots go twice as far as the tree is high. Um, so it, it's probably good to get rid of those leaves, but the, the toxin is in those roots that are throughout the yard probably. Um, so, yeah, and, and black walnuts are beautiful, but they... They, they, there aren't really, there isn't a lot of good research on what grows well with them other than raspberries, daylilies, and, and grass. Um, so if you've had anything survive, you're ahead of a lot of people uh, mm. with, uh, with that. Um, Marcy, do you have comments? Oh, um, yeah, no, what, I, it sounds to me like you've been building the soil up, and so maybe they've gotten above that um, toxicity zone over the years because she said they've worked hard to make the soil uh, productive. But um, as far as the rain barrel, yeah, you know, anytime you have water that's going to sit still um, through a season, it might get a little funky. Um, just, you know, you got to do a little bit of maintenance. That's all. Good luck, Wendy. <laughs> okay, thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, so let me get to... Um, we had this one from Stephen Menden is out at Odonata Sanctuary. He's wondering if certification programs such as the National Wildlife Federation's Garden for Wildlife could be used to convince municipalities to allow folks to create environmentally friendly yards. Michael Warren Thomas, you're a big advocate for thinking about our yards differently. Is this in, in your wheelhouse? Sure. There's Audubon Sanctuary, too. There's... Um um, a whole bunch of, of different, and all of them should be used. We should promote them. We should encourage people. It gives it gives people kind of a goal to work for. You know, some of the programs you need to have a water source. You need to have, you know, uh, habitats. Uh, you know, so there's various different requirements, and 
some of them uh, will let you put up a sign like the pollinator one uh, that that uh, uh, that Marcy mentioned uh, for cooperative extension. So we should use all of those as opportunities to educate our neighbors about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, and you know, it, you, you if you just let your front yard just go, you know, the no mow may thing, which like you you did some interviews about last year. Uh, not really a great idea because it, it it doesn't really help too much and it, it just annoys people. Uh, <laughs> it, it's you need to be more purposeful about it than that. And um, uh, so, you know, try the no mow may in the backyard maybe and experiment with it. Uh, I think one way I've I, in my yard uh, I started out with just lawn when I moved in thirty years ago. A uh, former client gave me a little seedling of a of an ironwood tree. It was three inches high. Planted it in my front yard. Uh, the goldenrod that I'd planted dwarfed it for, for the first six years. And now it's 30 feet high, and it's kicked the goldenrod across the sidewalk into the tree lawn area. Uh, but it, I think you know, one way to get rid of grass is to plant some trees shaded out with shrubs, perennials, and things. Um, getting rid of grass is a challenge. Um, so if, if you're got a new home, you're going to build a new home, don't plant grass everywhere. Start out doing something different in major areas because it is a challenge to get rid of grass. Uh, cardboard and newspaper work with mulch on top of them, but it's hard to get enough newspaper these days, and cardboard <laughs> takes a lot of cardboard. So uh, that's that's a challenge. Uh, let's see here. Sarah wants to know, does this mean my beloved Japanese maple is not native? Well, it's a Japanese Correct. maple. Yeah, mine isn't either. I have a Japanese. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Yeah. I planted it. It's okay. It's okay. Don't beat yourself up. (laughs) How do you like yours, Michael? I love. It's gorgeous. It it was actually being thrown away to nursery because it was half dead, and I resurrected it, and it looks gorgeous in all seasons. So you know, I've got the vinca. I've got uh, my Norway maple, which I can't remove because it's a city tree. My Japanese maple. Kusa dogwoods are not native. I've got two of those. Do I remove them? Uh, at some point, maybe I will, um, but I certainly anything new that I plant is going to be native. And uh, under those trees, I have rooms room for shrubs and beautiful winter berries and uh, uh, clethra that blooms in the summer. It's called summer sweet. Uh, there, once you start looking at this, you realize that the lawn is so boring, and you have all these other plants that are exciting where things are blooming and uh, you know insects are visiting them, and and it's it's fun to watch. I mean, if you go out and watch Joe Pye weed and all the little bees that will never sting you, they just, just flying around like crazy around there. Just pull up a chair and watch them. You see how much you're missing with that boring lawn when you have so much nature that can inhabit all these other spaces. I have dragonflies in my yard because I have a little tiny pond in back. And, uh, uh, we've got bald eagles now in Genesee Valley park. I've seen a pair of bald eagles a couple times over the last couple months. So uh, you start to appreciate the big nature, like bald eagles, but then the little dragonflies. And uh, I had a leaf cutter bee. I finally saw one cutting the little section of my red bud, which is a native, cutting a little section of the leaf off. Looks like I did it with a laser. It's just amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Mm. If we could just convince wasps' temperament to get better. Yeah, but it's, all, it's not. It's, it's, those, it's those yellow jackets. And you know the bald-faced hornet, which yeah. makes the paper... Uh, balls up in the trees. You see them now because the leaves are gone. They actually, the inside of their nests can become somewhat yellow because they eat yellow jackets. So you want those bald-faced hornets. They have a terrible-sounding, scary name, but they are, they'll eat the yellow jackets. And the skunks eat the yellow jackets, dig them up out of the ground. So you know, yellow jackets give every single bee and wasp a bad name. They really name. do. They, yeah. they, it's just awful. You can't even negotiate yeah. with them. They're really no. tough. Uh, Linda writes to say, what is the best way to permanently get rid of wild grape vines and other vines mm. that propagate or spread underground throughout the, their, or through their root system? They grow very fast. They take over and climb everything and then kill plants and trees by cutting off their sunshine. This occurs in my field and also along roadsides and in parks where I hike. That's from Linda. Marcy, you want to start with that one? Yeah, I mean, it's the most vines are very aggressive. Um, Grapevine is particularly aggressive and um, it's really hard. It's really hard to control it. So you just have, you know, what I tell myself is that, you know, they're providing 
food for the birds. Um, they love those grapes. And uh, in the wintertime, we can see where they're eating them um, and they drop in the snow. So, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, there really isn't a solution. I, I, you know, short of some really nasty chemicals, um, I, I don't know how you get rid of something like that. If it's in your yard or if it's in an area that you want to control, you just have to kind of keep at it. And, uh, you know, as you remove the leaf surface, so every time you, you yank or, or dig out or get rid of part of it that's growing above ground, it loses its food making um, apparatus. And uh, so that's going to weaken it eventually. But um, it's, it's a mighty task for sure. Michael? Yeah, you know, grape. I have grapevines in my backyard, Niagara grapes, and they are they are a weed. Um, cutting them constantly. Uh, I don't actually consider the wild grapes quite as bad as bittersweet. Bittersweet is is a, a, I think far more aggressive and harder to get rid of. Just a bigger root system. Uh, and then we have other invasives like swallowwort, which uh, and and then the um, uh, Japanese knotweed which grows very tall and, and uh, very thickly. So you, you need to know what these are, recognize them, learn about them, read about them this winter, sort of like you do native plants, because in, invasive species are often the opposite of native. They're coming to an area with no pests, with no, nothing that eats them. And so they, they can just run amok. Uh, and uh, the sooner you recognize them in your yard, the easier they will be to try and control them. I know you care very deeply about the Finger Lakes wine industry. They've been worried about the spotted, spotted lanternfly in recent years. Oh, yeah. What do we know about um, how far the spotted lanternfly has made progress and what to do about it? So, uh, yeah, there's, it, it's actually a very interesting topic how, uh, how aggressive, aggressively one goes after it. Usually these invasive species like the marmorated stink bug, they, they, they come in waves and then the wave disappears or the spongy moth Formerly, gypsy moth was was big a couple of years ago here, and now it's it's uh, moved on, but it'll come back at some point in the future. So, spotted lanternfly came out of Pennsylvania. Uh, it's devastated a lot of vineyards in Pennsylvania. There are infestations in the cities around the Finger Lakes. So, there is one in, uh, infestation just found this last fall in uh, Rochester and Greece on 390, um, Syracuse, Buffalo, Binghamton, Ithaca. Uh, have infestations, and this you start to learn about that they're fascinating, really. They're kind of colorful, uh, but they make a huge mess. And they even using pesticides, they couldn't kill them in the vineyards in Pennsylvania. But Cornell's doing research on a couple of bacteria that uh, that kill them naturally. They found them in the uh, you know out out in the, under the trees under the grapevines, and so we don't have to quarantine this. It's not coming. Uh, from anywhere else. These are native bacteria that kill these lanternflies. They're trying to commercialize a way to treat them, the lanternfly, hopefully before they start really devastating the vineyards. Uh, they're sort of surrounded the vineyards now in the Finger Lakes with, uh, in the cities. Uh, yeah, brought, brought where to we... the cities by people on their cars. They just didn't know. Okay, and so, so they're here, but they're not, they haven't overspread the Finger Lakes region yet, so... They've surrounded it. Surrounded, yeah. <laughs> Literally. In a weird way. Surrounded it. And Ithaca, really, the, uh, the ag and markets and the DEC are working. They, they want to know if you see them. You won't, you won't see the adults till summer, but they want you to report them. Uh, they've been aggressively trying to control them. They're spending a lot of money and time doing this. They took down 50 mature trees in Ithaca trying to control that infestation because they lay their eggs up to 60 feet up in a tree. You cannot... Go find those eggs. Um, yeah, they're fascinating, though. Um, real quick, squeeze in as much as we can. Dallas says, thyme, T-H-Y-M-E. How do I get rid of it? Do I use vinegar? What do you say, Marcy? It's a, it's a woody perennial. You should be able to dig it up. Um, you know, I know it spreads, but uh, I would think, it, you know, it's kind of shallow-rooted. I, I would think you'd be able to pull that, you know, dig that out. Don't, don't put vinegar on it. No. Okay. Michael? Vinegar kills the leaves. It's not going to kill the roots. So it, it would just probably grow back. Um, I've never had anyone say they had too much time. Yeah. I mean, really? Uh, so it's probably just in the wrong place. Maybe 
and there are shallow rooters, as Marcy said, so you could skim some soil with them and move them to somewhere else. The, the time that I've seen that spread just looks gorgeous. It's it's often somewhat bigger than moss. There's woolly thyme. There's a whole lot of different times actually, but um, yeah, it, it's it, it could be valuable to someone. Speaking of time, T I M E, it's almost up. I'm going to get Michael 30 seconds. What do you want to leave with listeners? Uh, less lawn, more nature. I just uh, keep repeating that. It's lawns and non-native plants are lost opportunities where we could be feeding nature, and, and we have fewer birds, we have fewer insects. They desperately need food, uh, and the, the those chickadees cannot raise their young on bird seed. Ninety-six percent of birds cannot use bird seed to raise their young. They need caterpillars with more protein, and that's crucial. Marcy, thirty seconds. Uh, don't be so concerned with everything being perfect. Um, nature isn't perfect, and so just kind of go with it and uh, let it fly, and uh, just kind of loosen up a little bit. Marcy Muller is a horticulture team leader at Cornell Cooperative Extension of Monroe County. Marcy, always enjoy it. Happy almost spring. Uh, thank hope you. The rest of the winter's so much. Yeah, thank you, Marcy. Love being here. Thanks. And Michael Warren Thomas, you'll find more about, with Michael at naturallygreenflx.com, um, or if you've been some of Michael's classes and teachings. Uh, really great having you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Evan. Less lawn, more nature. You're giving me permission. Happy spring. A push. Happy <laughs> spring indeed. From the whole team at Connections, Rob Braden, Megan Mack, Evan Dawson saying, thank you for listening. When we say member supported public radio, I hope you are a member of public radio. It's day one of our winter membership campaign, our almost spring membership campaign. You can find more membership information at wxxi.org give.